<laughs> Great to see you all. Good morning, everybody online. Um, hey, I wanted to mention we did have Celebrate Recovery kickoff last week, and it was a great kickoff for it. Woo-hoo. So, yeah, so besides those that were there to check out Celebrate Recovery for themselves, we had people here from other Celebrate Recovery groups, we, you know, and then the team and everything. So it was, it, was a good, it was a good kickoff for it. And just as a reminder, Celebrate Recovery is for anyone dealing with any kind of hurts, habits, hang-ups, which is pretty much all of us. So uh, if God's nudging you, you could come tonight, right? Six o'clock right here. So Celebrate Recovery. So, and one other thing we want to mention and uh, kind of celebrate is um, at our last board meeting, we licensed Tom Lanham as a pastor here. Whoa! So, Tom, come on up. So, what that means, licensing, the way it works around here is we license and ordain uh, within the church, and, and licensing is like the first step towards ordination or the next step towards ordination. If you're licensed, it's like you're ordained, but it has to get renewed every year. So you're on probation, basically. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I just thought we should just pray for him, don't you think? I mean, it's kind of cool, but you can now call him Pastor Tom. Oh, not that we do that around here, but you could. Yeah. So, uh, all right, let's pray. So, Lord, we do thank you for Tom. Thank you for the gift he is to this church, all the many gifts he brings to us. And we uh, thank you that he's taken this step. We pray you continue to fill him up and teach him and equip him and shape him and pour your life out through him to all of us here in the church. So we bless him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Twenty-five years old. Isn't that something for the church? That's amazing. I didn't even realize it. I came up in a pastor's meeting I was in. Uh, we were talking about things, and it's like, oh, wait, it is our 25th anniversary. It's like, this is cool. So, um, okay, well, in his novel, Jaber Crow, Wendell Berry tells the story of a gentle barber who opens his shop and then spends the rest of his life in the fictional town of Port William, Kentucky. Uh, good book if you're ever looking for something to read. Uh, soon after arriving in Port William, Jaber Crow falls in love with this beautiful young woman named Maddie Keith. Uh, Jaber described Maddie uh, as someone who made him feel extraordinarily seen, as if he said, I might be visible in the dark. But without telling you the whole story, Jaber and Maddie don't end up together. A few years later, in fact, Maddie marries a different man named Troy Chatham, who's described as a lazy bum who mismanages and then ruins the beautiful farm he inherited from Maddie's parents. Well, Maddie's respect for her kind of oafish husband unravels at the same time that Jaber realizes he's still in love with her. And Jaber said that for a long time he didn't know what to make of that situation. He asked himself, what business does an ineligible bachelor have being in love with a married woman? And near the end of the novel, Jaber wrestled with whether he should act on his feelings or not. And then finally, he vows before God that he will love and cherish Maddie as he would his own wife 
but he will not act on his feelings and he will not even tell her of his continued love. And Jaber concludes uh, by saying, sometimes I knew in my mind and heart why I had done what I had done, and I welcomed the sacrifice. But there were times when I lived in the desert and felt no joy and saw no hope, and I couldn't remember my old feelings. And then I had to live by faith alone. Well, we've been in this sermon series talking about the Ten Commandments for a number of weeks now. And today, we're going to talk about the Sixth Command, which tells us to not commit adultery. Now, it's a pretty straightforward command, pretty simple. And on the one hand, I think probably most of us would agree with it. But on the other hand, we might wonder, well, aren't there mitigating circumstances? You know, what about happiness? You know, what about a loveless marriage? Did Jaber Crow do the right thing, or would it have been better if he hadn't been so rigid, we might think, so legalistic? That's what we're going to talk about. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come and be with us now, we ask. I ask, Father, that as we continue looking at the Ten Commandments today, that um, just like the psalmist prayed in, in Psalm 119, that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. Come, Holy Spirit, and work in our minds and our heart so that God's statutes really would be our delight, that we would receive your commandments as our counselors, teaching us the way of wisdom and life. Amen. So, Exodus 2014 says, very simply, you shall not commit adultery. And the definition of adultery is when a married person engages in sexual activity with someone other than their spouse. According to a study reported in the Journal of Psychology and Christianity, as many as 65% of men and 55% of women will have an extramarital affair by the time they're 40. Woo. And then a survey done by Christianity Today magazine found that 23% of the 300 pastors who responded to their survey admitted to sexually inappropriate behavior with someone other than their spouse while they were in ministry. Now that's discouraging, isn't it? <laughs> and then when Jesus talked about adultery in his famous Sermon on the Mount, he made it clear that it's not just the physical activity that's the problem. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So when you expand the definition of adultery that way, there are very few people who haven't stumbled over this command, right? Which is why Jesus came. <laughs> all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God uh, that comes to us as a gift because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're all in this together. And the good news is, we're all forgiven. Amen? Yeah. 
So if this topic brings up feelings for you of regret or guilt or shame, you know, if this is an area where maybe you have fallen into sin, whether recently or years ago, know that God does not look at you with judgment and condemnation. God is here today offering you grace and forgiveness and mercy. That's good news. Amen? Yeah. And Jesus is inviting us into something more than forgiveness, too. That's the starting point. But the goal is transformation. Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit to empower us to live lives of grace and love and holiness so that we truly can be God's image, so that we can bear God's name well, as we've been talking about in this series. We need, as Romans 12 says, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that the way we live isn't shaped by the ways of this world or the ways of the culture around us. You know, over the past couple of years, I have spent a lot of time reading books and and listening to podcasts to, to try and understand better these times in which we live, the the culture that we're in, and how our culture got to be the way that it is. A A problem we face as Christians is that we live in a very secular culture, right? Um, We just do. And that culture impacts us every day, all of the time. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. And it's, it's easy, therefore, to not even be aware of how we're being impacted or shaped by the culture around us, how it's shaping our thinking or how it's affecting the way we live. Now, now sometimes when we take a step back as Christians and we are aware of it, we respond by trying to withdraw from the culture trying to, as much as possible, live separate from the world so as to not be influenced by it. Well, there can be wisdom in some parts of that, but Jesus taught us to accept the challenge of being in the world without being of the world, right? And sometimes we even go as far as seeing our culture or the people who aren't followers of Jesus as our enemy that we need to judge or fight against or gain power over in some way. Well, that's not the way Jesus taught us either. We're to love everyone, even if they do in some ways seem like an enemy. We're to be the light in the darkness, the image of God reflecting his glory and pointing everyone toward the love of God. We're to bear God's name well. So to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, we need to recognize the false thinking that's being taught in our culture, by our culture, and then respond not by withdrawing from the world and not by judging or attacking others, but by letting our lives be shaped by the truth of God's Word and the presence of His Spirit in our lives so that we really can Love God, love others, period. Well, one of the primary falsehoods, I think, that, that our culture uh, puts on us and kind of just soaks us in these days is that you must, above all, be true to yourself. Sometimes that's called authenticity. 
Sometimes it's referred to these days as expressive individualism, if you read the literature. But whatever you want to call it, it means that who I am and how I live is something only I can decide. It's rooted in what I feel deep in my heart and what I think, how I define myself based on how I think and feel. No one else has a right to speak into that. And what matters most in this is my personal happiness, my fulfillment. Above all, I must be true to myself. Sheldon uh, Vonneken is an author best known for a, a really powerful love story, a, a book called A Severe Mercy. Again, a great book if you're looking for a, a novel to read. Um, and he, in another collection of essays that he wrote called Under the Mercy, Sheldon describes a Christian friend named John who shocked him one day by announcing that he was leaving his wife to marry another woman who was also already married. And John explained his, his sudden change of heart to Sheldon by saying, well, it just seems so good. It just seems so right. I mean, that's when we, we both knew we had to get divorces because we belonged together. Vonnegut then described the conversation with a different friend named Diana who left her husband for another man. And Diana defended herself with virtually the same words. She said, it, it was just so good and right with Roger that I knew it would be wrong to go on with Paul. As Vonnegut explains, both John and Diana were invoking uh, what they felt was a higher law, the feeling of goodness and rightness, a feeling so powerful that it swept away whatever guilt they would have otherwise felt for what they were doing to their families. I have to be true to myself. That's what they were believing, right? That's what John and Diana were saying. I have to be authentic. I have to do what feels right, what feels good to me, and no one else can define that except me. This is so much in the air that we breathe today that you hear this and we think, but yeah, isn't that right? <laughs> isn't that what we're supposed to do? When I was thinking and praying about how to approach this sermon, my first thought was to dive into the topic of our sexuality. That would have been fun, right? <laughs> and that is a really important topic. In fact, it's so important that I am going to spend several Sundays talking about it in April. So stay tuned. <laughs> uh, uh, because we need our minds renewed about our sexuality, too. We really do. But our sexuality is really not the issue at the root of adultery. The sin of adultery is not just about, or I think it's not even primarily about sex. Authenticity isn't the root either, but authenticity gets us to the, to the root. Authenticity, as the word is used today, tells me that I am made in the image of me. I define me, or you do you, as we hear all the time, right? That's the same thing, you do you. What matters is how I feel. No one else can tell me how I should be. But God says, you know, that's not actually true. <laughs> you were made in the image of God. He is the potter. We are the clay, right? 
It's God who defines us, not we ourselves. Now, there are all sorts, or is all sorts, of wonderful and beautiful individuality in how God made you and and in who he made you to be. Each of us is unique. So this is not to downplay or minimize that in any way. But it is to say that true authenticity, discovering the real you, and doing what really leads to life and fulfillment is not found by looking within or by trusting in how I feel, no matter how strong those feelings may be. It's found by looking to God and listening to God, whose image I am, and letting his life shape mine. Which is why God gave us all of his commands including the one that says, do not commit adultery. See, these are not rules to obey in order to make God happy. He's already happy, (laughs) right? We don't have to make him happy. They are describing how to live in a way that life actually works, that it doesn't wreak havoc and chaos. The commandments are all invitations into ways of living that will actually produce the life and the joy and the peace and the love that we all want. God made us in his image. Life only works when our lives are shaped by God's life, by who God is and what God is like. And one of the foundational characteristics of God, which I believe is at the very root, of this command to not commit adultery is faithfulness. To be faithful is to be trustworthy. To be faithful is to be dependable. To be faithful is to put the good of another ahead of your own. It's what we vow when we get married, right? To be faithful is to do what you said you would do no matter what it costs you and no matter how I am feeling. God is utterly faithful. God loves us without limit, and he never gives up on us. He never turns his back on us. Jesus showed us what the faithfulness of God looks like. His faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness, resulted in him suffering and dying for us. So clearly, not something Jesus did because it felt good. It's because of Jesus' faithfulness, too, that we are saved. God wants us to be faithful like he is faithful. A clue to faithfulness being the root uh, issue uh, in in adultery uh, came to me from a, a Jewish rabbi named David Foreman who made the observation that this sixth command to not commit adultery mirrors the first command to worship only God. Both are commands to be faithful to one God and to one spouse. And then throughout the Old Testament, the word adultery is used metaphorically to describe what Israel was doing whenever they worshiped idols. They were said to be committing spiritual adultery because they were being unfaithful to God. Well, this is not a new idea for us. We use the word unfaithful to describe a spouse who commits adultery. 
But what most of our TV shows and movies and novels and magazines will tell us is that we must first of all be faithful to ourselves, be faithful to our own feelings, and that is the lie of our culture. That leads not to life, but to an unraveling of life. We are to be faithful, first of all, to God, uh, to who God is, to who God says we are, to how God says we are to live, and then our faithfulness to our spouse becomes just one expression of a faithfulness that shapes every part of our lives. So that's what I, I sense the Holy Spirit saying to me this morning. I felt like he was really emphasizing that to me this morning as I was coming in here, and I had to come in and think this through and edit my talk a little bit. Um, he was really impressing on me because it, it's so easy to think of the Ten Commandments uh, as a kind of checklist, isn't it? And so we get down the list, think, well, that's good. I'm pretty good at numbers one and two, and I haven't murdered anybody lately, so check on that one. And I'm not married, so the sixth command to not commit adultery doesn't even apply to me, right? <laughs> freebie. It's a freebie, at least, for, at least for now, right? Yeah. See, but these Ten Commandments are so much more than just a checklist. They are an invitation into a way of life that is very different from the way of our world. The sixth commandment isn't just about sex. It's about being faithful in every part of our life. Being faithful to God, like Jesus was faithful to his Father. Being faithful to our spouse and family. Faithful with our money and our possessions. Faithful to our friends. Faithful to our church. Faithful to even love our enemies like Jesus taught us to. We're to be faithful like God is faithful. Amen? Yeah. In 1940, Clarence Jordan founded Koinonia Farm in Americus, Georgia, as a, a haven for racial unity and cooperation. That was a bold move in 1954 in Georgia, don't you think? Um, and then one night, or in 1940, I should say, one night then, 14 years later, 1954, the Ku Klux Klan came in the evening and burned down every building on the farm except for Jordan's home. Well, in the midst of that rain, while all that chaos was going on, Jordan was there and he recognized the voice of a local newspaper reporter coming from one of those hooded Klansmen. And the next morning, that reporter showed up at his farm wanting to write a story about the arson while the rubble was still smoldering there. And he found Jordan in the field planting seeds. And he said to Jordan, this reporter said to Jordan, well, I heard the awful news about your tragedy last night, and I came to do a story about the closing of your farm. And Jordan just kept planting and hoeing. And the reporter continued his prodding and got no response. Jordan didn't respond at all. Just quiet, hoed and planted. Finally, the reporter said, you know, Clarence, you've got two PhDs. You've put 14 years of work into this farm. 
and now you've got nothing left. Just how successful do you think you've been? And with that statement, Jordan stopped hoeing. And he said to the reporter, you just don't get it, do you? You don't understand us Christians. See, what we're about is not success, but faithfulness. We're to be faithful like God is faithful. Now, just to be clear, there are some boundaries with this. There are some caveats because we live in a broken world. So, for instance, being faithful does not mean staying in an abusive relationship, right? We want to make that real clear. If you are in that kind of a situation, know that God is there with you, loving you faithfully, and he is faithful to deliver you. And usually the way God will do that is through other people who can help you. So if that would be your situation, we say, come talk to us. Let us know. Don't think that faithfulness means staying in an abusive relationship. It doesn't. But what I'm talking about today is being faithful to do what you said you would do even when your feelings tell you otherwise, right? Even when something else might make you happier. That's what our culture tells us to do. We're to be faithful like God is faithful, like Jesus is faithful, no matter how we feel, you know, even when it's costly. That's what Clarence Jordan understood. That's what Jaber Crow understood. And sometimes as we live faithful lives, we will experience the joy of God's presence and life in that. We'll experience his pleasure in the midst of our faithfulness. But other times, like Jaber Crow said, not so much. It feels like a desert, and we have to live by faith alone. Faithfulness isn't based on how we feel. Well, that kind of faithfulness that God is inviting us into, well, that's not something we can generate ourselves. It's listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, which means that it's something God produces in us as we listen to God, spend time with God, talk with God, trust God, depend on God, and as by the power of the Spirit in us, we practice being faithful with every opportunity he gives us. So let God make you faithful as he is faithful. Amen? Amen. Amen.